World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Every year since 1965, a genial gentleman from Nebraska has put his thoughts into a long letter. Tomorrow, he'll put out another one, and hundreds of thousands of people can't wait to see it. Our correspondents and editors weigh in on Warren Buffett's wisdom. And there's tremendous growth in a genre of Japanese literature, books written by and for the elderly. But as lives grow longer, the young too are getting a peek at what lies ahead. First up, though. Tomorrow is the deadline set by Juan Guaido, widely viewed as the interim president of Venezuela, for humanitarian aid to be delivered to the impoverished country. Venezuela has been facing rampant hyperinflation and shortages of food and medicine after years of misrule by President Nicolas Maduro, who still clings to power. Mr. Maduro won the presidency again last year in elections that were widely viewed as fraudulent. Now, Venezuela's opposition and more than 50 countries recognize Mr. Guaido as the president. He's been organizing stockpiles of food and medicine in Colombia and Brazil and will be traveling to the Colombian border from Caracas to meet the deliveries. He's also called for volunteers to come to the border and help distribute it. But Mr. Maduro says he'll block any aid deliveries. Yesterday, he closed the border between Venezuela and Brazil and has threatened to close the border also with Colombia. Nicolas Maduro, the president, basically denies that there's a humanitarian crisis going on in Venezuela. Part of the case that the opposition is making is, you know, we're the guys who can, you know, relieve these shortages and begin to feed you properly and begin to provide medicines in the hospitals. So will any of Mr. Guaido's humanitarian aid make it into the country? Brooke Unger is our America's editor. What is Mr. Guaido planning this weekend? He said uh, February 23rd is the day when all this aid that's piling up in Colombia and uh, other countries around Venezuela will begin to move into Venezuela to relieve the humanitarian crisis there. And the big question is going to be, can he make that happen? And what will the government do to stop it? And where is this aid coming from? A lot of it's coming from the U.S. There are also some European countries that are contributing aid to this effort. So it's coming from quite a number of places, but uh, yeah, mainly from outside the region. And why this deadline? What's special about the 23rd? Guaido in a, a rally uh, a week or so ago said, you know, kind of named the 23rd as being the day when this would begin to happen. So it's kind of a self-imposed deadline. But, you know, they needed to start it at some point. And, you know, obviously, in addition to being a day when he hopes that aid begins to flow into Venezuela, there's, there's a lot of politics and symbolism surrounding this day. So he not only wants food and medicine to get to people, but he wants kind of the world to sort of rally around the idea that his interim government is going to, is, is going to provide support for, for hungry 
brief Venezuelans. So ab- about that crucial question of, of can Mr. Guaido get this aid through, do you think he can? What is the, what's the plan? What he does have, what he's trying to have, is uh, he's signed up hundreds of thousands of volunteers who are supposedly going to try and begin to bring this aid from the border with Colombia into uh, something like 12 cities inside Venezuela. How that actually is going to play out will be very interesting to see. We don't know exactly what his tactics are going to be. Um, you know, one thing to, to point out is that the border between Colombia and Venezuela is pretty porous. You could have volunteers crossing the border at unguarded points and attempting to bring aid in that way. Um, there's also speculation that, uh, you know, there might be airdrops of aid uh, from, um, you know, from U.S. planes. Aid could come in that way or by, or by boat. So, you know, we don't know exactly what route the aid is going to take. And what we really don't know is what the reaction of Venezuela's armed forces is going to be. What might they do? Why why can they be seen to stop aid coming in? The government portrays this essentially as as a sort of invasion of Venezuela. I mean, they, they regard the delivery of American aid as being kind of a cover for an attempt to, an American attempt to topple the government, an American invasion of sorts. And, you know, they would see stopping the aid as being a way of defending their sovereignty. President Trump has, has come out clearly in support of, of Guaido. You can choose to accept President Guaido's generous offer of amnesty to live your life in peace with your families and your countrymen. What's America's interest in this whole question? Donald Trump has taken a very firm and consistent line against the Maduro regime, you know, which is not entirely consistent with his line on other repressive dictators in in, in the rest of the world. There are various explanations for that. I mean, one reason may be that there are quite a lot of Americans of Venezuelan and Cuban origin in Florida, which is an important swing state. And so Trump wants to appear to be on the side of those people who are certainly against the Venezuelan regime. You know, it's also true that, um, you know, some prominent Republicans, in particular uh, Marco Rubio, who's from Florida, has kind of made it his, his cause. Right. And what about the effect that might have then in, in the country? It could, could it be that the Venezuelan people like uh, a meddling American administration even less than they like the situation they've got? There's a big risk here. At the moment, the U.S. and the opposition in Venezuela are kind of working hand in glove. And the opposition have gone along with uh, very, very tough American sanctions, which you know, the hope is that those sanctions are going to dislodge the regime by denying the cash it basically needs to survive. But you know, in doing that, it's also going to worsen the, the plight of the Venezuelan people. So you, know, you have this rather ironic situation where in order to push the regime out, the opposition is siding with measures that, that will you – you know, will hurt their own people. You know, at the moment, there's an alliance there. But it's certainly, you know, it's certainly true that if the U.S. follows through with its threat to begin to use military force to push the regime out, you know, then the the, the equation could change. I, I think it's very important that this process in Venezuela be seen as, you know, Venezuelans getting rid of a dictatorial regime rather than as Americans coming in and imposing a government that suits them. Will this work for, for Mr. Guaido? Do you think that he, he will be able to sort of assume power in, in full or will Mr. Maduro hang on in the long run? I think that's very, very difficult to say. <laughs> 
Um, it's clear that the the pillars of support for this regime are are crumbling. They've lost public support. They've lost international support, except for a few a few isolated countries like Russia and Turkey. Even China is is kind of wavering. They're running out of cash. But unless you you begin to see real signs of defection within the armed forces, you know this regime can go on. And there's no further indication that support for him within the sort of the, the higher echelon of the military is, is crumbling. At the moment, there's no such indication. I mean, you had the the defense minister saying a couple of days ago that the coalition arranged against the, the government would would have to topple it over his dead body. The, the, the army high command seems to be pretty solidly with Maduro. So there's no real indication except for a few isolated cases of defection that the uh, that the army is going to desert the regime. Right. Brooke, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Warren Buffett is a legendary investor. He's nicknamed the Sage of Omaha. Every year, he writes a letter addressed to shareholders in his firm, Berkshire Hathaway. This year's is out tomorrow. It's hotly anticipated by lots of people unconnected to the company as well, in part because he's renowned for his folksy wisdom. Do your own work and make your own judgment. Be fearful when others are greedy. Be greedy when others are fearful. You only find out who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. If a horse had been making the investment decision, we wouldn't have the automobile. These mantras carry a lot of weight, given Mr. Buffett's achievements. In the words of some of the business and finance gurus here at The Economist, he's... The greatest living investor. His annualized return is close to 20%, which is double the performance of the market. He has a kind of unique status because he's a, he's a folk hero in America. He lives in this fairly regular house. He spends, I think, something like $100,000 a year and no more, even though you know, his net worth has to be something like $70 or $80 billion. He couches all of his investment advice in very easy-to-understand, folksy ways. And this makes him sort of a popular everyman compared with the sort of Wall Street investors that the public is used to seeing. But if you're not a shareholder in Berkshire Hathaway, why read Mr. Buffett's annual letter at all? I'll be reading the letter because everyone else is reading the letter. That's how it works in markets. It's like a funny investment column. It's quite entertaining. And as for the letter's content... Every year, there's something, either a witticism or an incisive remark that gives investors a very useful insight about what they should be doing. Philip Coggan writes our Bartleby column about management. He's been very good at pointing out the times when he thinks that 
the market is overvalued or that there is financial excess in the system. You know, he was seen in the late 90s as a dinosaur for not getting tech stocks. But he was right. There was a bubble going on at the time and he was proved to be right subsequently. There's this sort of magic and mythology around Buffett. So, you know, what Buffett says, maybe, maybe I can follow that and get a little bit of the action. Andrew Palmer is our executive editor. There are literally funds that try and take the Buffett magic and turn that into investing techniques. What constitutes the Buffett magic emerges across the body of these shareholder letters, which Mr. Buffett has been writing since 1965. I think there are three sort of common threads that run through the 50 plus years of letters that he's been writing. The first is don't invest in businesses that you can't understand. He likes simple businesses with clear strategies and business opportunities. Alice Fullwood is our Wall Street correspondent. The second common thread is how to treat your employees and the management of companies. I think they haven't had a single CEO leave the 40 companies that they own in the past 25 years. He looks for strong managers who are motivated by their integrity and their their energy. And the third thing is his whole investment thesis, which is that you should also invest in companies when they look undervalued. What? Buffett says is that people rush to buy things at the point when everyone thinks they're doing really, really well. And then they rush to sell things at the point when everyone is panicking. And you should basically flip that. Um, So, you know, if you see a great company and its price has been whacked, buy it. And when he buys, he holds. So he says his favorite holding period is forever. Pick businesses that have a kind of moat around them, which can defend themselves against new rivals. Pick those which have a very strong franchise and very high earnings, because if you keep reinvesting the earnings, then over the long run, you will grow. Buffett famously spends uh, an enormous amount of his time sitting in a very nondescript office in Omaha reading. And, you know, he reads obscure magazines. He looks deeply into figures. He looks into accounts. Patrick Fowles oversees all of our business and finance coverage. What he doesn't do is rely that much on third-party sort of external assessments of how to understand the world, the consultants, the bankers, the analysts. His view is most of that's complete rubbish and that you need to look directly at the facts yourself and try and reach a common-sense judgment about them. These principles of investment aside, the letters also reveal the narrative Mr. Buffett has constructed about himself and his partner Charlie Munger. There is no doubt that they are the heroes of the story. You know, from every paragraph, there is something about just how wonderful they are. Henry Trix writes our Schumpeter column about business. And then there are, there are the classic villains, which are like the deal makers, the investment bankers, the big chief executives, whatever. And he, he sort of always portrays them as being these guys with big, hungry mouths dying to be fed by the markets. The interesting thing about Buffett is that he projects a story about himself that doesn't exactly match what has actually taken place. So his investment style has changed significantly. It used to be principally about taking small stakes in listed businesses and running an insurance company. What's happened more recently is he's engaged in huge takeovers of big industrial companies. And his letters, I think, project a degree of continuity that hasn't actually happened in real life. And they don't, in the later stage, really grapple with the big issue about Berkshire Hathaway. It's resorted to doing these huge acquisitions. It's not really clear that they've been particularly successful. And that's why Berkshire's performance relative to the stock market has actually flagged a bit in recent years. 
and what can we expect to see when this year's letter comes out tomorrow? What people will be looking for, I think, is three things. One is the traditional Buffett offering, which is lessons about investing, common sense rules of thumb. The second thing is people will look for information about the portfolio he runs now. And Berkshire Hathaway is one of the world's 10 most valuable businesses. Lastly, people will be looking for information about when the show ends, because Mr. Buffett is really very elderly. And the question of succession and who takes over the management of this big company is becoming ever more important. The company is really something that he controls. It's his personal style that dictates how it allocates resources and hundreds of billions of dollars of other people's money are tied up in it. But whatever happens to Berkshire Hathaway, when Mr. Buffett is no longer at its helm, one thing is for sure. He has an enviable amount of wealth. Over the long run, it's a phenomenal performance of compounding uh, shareholder value. I only wish that my dad, your dad, had bought us a few Berkshire Hathaway shares when he started because uh, then we would be making this broadcast from our yachts in the Bahamas rather than from a uh, a dank little office in uh, the middle of London. Someone somewhere will object to the word dank. (laughs) (laughs) With the Oscars coming up on Sunday, attention is focusing on diversity in film. In this week's episode of The Economist Asks, Anne McElvoy questioned the actor Chiwetel Ejiofor on who's responsible for change. And you've worked with some of the great directors of the last decades. I'm thinking of 12 Years a Slave, Steve McQueen, Spike Lee on Inside Man. How much power do you think directors have to change the status quo? Are they stepping up to it? I think directors have a lot of power and, and, have a, and have a lot of influence and can very much sort of lead the conversation in several ways. But I think it's about how films are produced, uh, the nature of the audiences that are uh, being invited to come to the, uh, to the productions and, and to see the films or the TV shows or the plays and the diversity of those audiences as well and whether that's something that is actively encouraged or whether it's not particularly encouraged. To hear the full interview, download The Economist Asks, available wherever you listen. Sarah Burke is our Tokyo bureau chief. She's noticed a change in her local bookstores. A large part of my job here in Tokyo involves looking at Japan's aged population. I mean, it's really at the forefront of aging. 28% of the population are over 65 already, and that is projected to rise. So I spend a lot of time sort of looking at different ways that we can talk about this, be it from pensions to healthcare to the more sort of lighter things like elderly literature. Elderly literature. Uh, What do you mean by that? For or by? Uh, Both. So what we've noticed recently in the last couple of years is there are a lot more books by quite old authors and aimed at older readers. So we're talking about people in their 70s, 80s and 90s. I mean, there's a whole genre here called Arahun literature, which is by those who are around 100 years old. You know, the best-selling book in 2017 that sold one million copies was by a 95-year-old author, Aiko Saito, about age 90 and what's so great about it. So she sort of writes this quite humorous essay about what it's like being old and sort of the challenges of it, but also some of the sort of funny aspects of it. And, and so what about the authors? What's, what's the demographic writing these books besides old? 
I mean, the other thing that's very striking is they're women. I mean, almost entirely women. So the essay I mentioned about what's so great about being age 90, that's by a 95-year-old woman. And obviously women here do have a longer life expectancy and live longer. But they also say, this research body, that it shows that the Japanese are passionate and interested in the sort of life of strong women, which is interesting because Japan is not a place that is necessarily the most gender equal country in the world. And so what kind of themes do, do these books take on? I mean, before they used to talk about things like dementia and nursing and the gap with generations, you know, sort of classic trends. But now you're seeing a lot more things talking about sort of the elderly way of life, how to live, how to find meaning in life once you're in your sort of old age. And you reckon that that's sort of a direct reflection then of the fact that people are living longer? Yeah, I mean, they're living longer, but not only are they living longer, they're living healthier. So people retire 60, 65, and they might well live to their 85, 90. So that gives them a good few decades of, of, of life left. Um, and how has that in turn changed the, the, the industry that, that publishes these books? The amount that people are spending on books here is declining, but that's less pronounced for those over 60, 65. So they're still reading. And these books are also finding popularity with younger readers. So it's not actually just the old who are buying and reading them. You know, and one of the reasons it seems to be resonating with younger people is, I mean, A, it's very noticeable when you walk around, even in the cities, that there are more old people. So it's a case of sort of trying to understand what's happening to Japan and its demographics. But there are also some themes that come out in these books, like loneliness, for example, that are not just experienced by the old, they're also experienced by younger people here, as in other countries. Sarah, thanks for your time and happy further reading and in due course maybe writing. (laughs) Thank you very much. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here on Monday. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.